Hey everyone, and welcome back to Bottomless Coffee Podcast. Now, most of you know that this podcast began shortly after I concluded a run for state representative here in Minnesota. And I don't know, maybe you were combing my website for details, but uh, if you weren't, then I can let you know that part of the reason why I ran for office in the very first place is because of something called the achievement gap or the opportunity gap. Now, there's a lot of conversation to be had around the gap itself, but just know that I wanted to close it. And I was prepared to go to the state capitol, oops, prepared to go to the state capitol to do so, uh, or at least prepared in spirit. I was certainly not prepared uh, in terms of policy, not from the get-go. So I joined an education policy fellowship so that I could have a better understanding of what changes needed to be made when I got to office. And today, we will be talking with one of the leaders of that fellowship. Hi, Troy. How's it going? It's going great, Jerome. Good to see you again. <laughs> it's well, good I'm to see you, you too. <laughs> now, I did some uh, digging for your formal uh, introduction. Uh-oh. And Uh-oh. It, wasn't, it wasn't too bad. It wasn't too bad. I got <laughs> Troy Haugen currently serves as the Career and Technical Education Coordinator and the coordinator of the Otter Tail Family Services Collaborative at Lakes Country Service Cooperative. Is that all true? Uh, yeah, kind of. Close kind enough. Of. It's, my title's changed a little bit, but it, it's all the same. It's all good. Okay, and then that, but that is your like one job. You also, uh, I don't know, you're, you, you kind of nurture a group of uh, maybe not necessarily aspiring politicians, but... Uh, people who are really interested in specifically education policy. Yeah, uh, I was a policy fellow myself. Oh boy, I think it was 2017, 2018. And at the time when I was when I did the policy fellowship, it was a, only a metro cohort. Um, uh, so I ended up driving back and forth to the Twin Cities metro. I live about 200 miles from there. Uh, to do that policy fellowship. It was pre-COVID, clearly, so it was face-to-face, and every every meeting was uh, at a restaurant sometime, somewhere in St. Paul. And mm-hmm. uh, after, you know, that experience, um, and a variety of other experiences that had happened related to education policy, I, uh, I, I, I re- quickly realized that this is an experience that other people have to have, particularly not in the seven-county metro. So yeah. I pitched it to my boss and said, why don't we try this? We took a year to kind of design it. And then we started the rural cohort of the Education Policy Fellowship. Uh, this is our third fellowship or third cohort. So yeah, it's, um, it's I, I love it. I mean, it's a very small part of my job, but it's a, it's, it's a very rewarding piece to see people, to uh, see the bigger picture of, of policy, not, you know, and how the game gets played, the sausage gets stuffed. So the sausage gets stuff. That's funny. Um, so just for context for the audience, um, when he, when Troy's saying the cities, he's talking about Minneapolis, St. Paul. You have yeah, to remember that I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a rural person. I don't use greater Minnesota cause that it applies that there's a lesser Minnesota, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a good old rural person. Oh, I had never thought of it that way. That's interesting. But our podcast audience is global. And so uh, when they are looking at the map, when you are talking about the metro area, you are specifically referring to the Minneapolis-St. Paul area. And uh, the rural area is the part of Minnesota that's, would you would you say it's mostly like outside of Minneapolis-St. Paul 
Rochester, Mankato, and uh, St. Cloud? I think the vast majority of people, when they say rural or quote-unquote greater Minnesota, it's anything outside of the seven-county Minneapolis-St. Paul metro. You know, yes, Duluth, cities of the first class in Minnesota, Duluth, Rochester, um, they're all considered a metro location. They're they're in all and metropolitan statistical area, but they're just we generally talk about the metro as the seven county twin cities Minneapolis St Paul metro area. Okay, thank you. Context, uh, and I think we're all gonna find that a lot of our conversations regarding policy and politics have to do with context, um, and so we'll want to mm-hmm. keep that in mind. Uh, but. Take us back to 2019. Uh, you are, you've, you've driven down uh, to the Twin Cities Metro, you've, to a restaurant for this fellowship, and you're learning about policy. Um, so what is policy? Yeah, that's, I, I love that you said we're going to have a lot of context, because that's kind of, uh, that's, that's the space you got to start from. So policy, you know, the, the, the definition that we operate with the policy fellowship is policy is a course of action uh, for a given period of time uh, intended to influence future decisions and actions. So it, it requires those three components, a course of action, a given period of time. Sometimes that given period of time is a short period of time. Sometimes it's, it's perpetual, but it's also intended to influence future decisions and future actions. So it's the it's the it's the uh, the concepts to really intended to solve a problem most of the time. Usually, when we talk about policy design, you have to start with a problem. I, I would argue that in education space, we start with prob- we start with solutions and then go back to problems, and that's why we fail so frequently. But with policy, it's starting with a problem. Uh, and then there's politics that we talk about, and mm-hmm. politics is very different. And I think politics gets confusing, too, because politics isn't a persuasion, isn't a dogma. Politics is the process to implement or even negotiate or a strategy to get to policy. Uh, And then there's that third component, which is partisanship, I would say. The third P is partisanship. And partisanship is the dogma for which people believe and fundamentally have beliefs around policy and Oftentimes, the politics component is is the same, no matter what your political dogma is, your, your partisan dogma is. The strategies are oftentimes the same, but it's the dogma, it's the partisanship that gets to be the really kind of sticky piece that mm-hmm. um, we continue to be uh, divesting from any level of center. Now, okay, policy, politics, and partisanship. And coming again back to context, when we are going to be talking about policy, we're primarily going to be talking about policy at the federal level, the state level, and then maybe also at the school district level with regard to, um, with regard to education policy. But you know, you can have individual policies like it is my policy not to consume more than two tequilas per meal. Or you can have family policies. In this family, we go to church on Sundays, you know. Um, you can, in any organization, you can have policies, I think it's fair to say. Right. And, and politics in just about any organization. Uh, maybe not in the individual sense. Uh, like in the, you can have an individual policy 
And you can certainly have your personal politics, but when we're talking about politics, we're talking about gamesmanship between um, sometimes opposing forces, I think, but also allies. Uh, and so I just want to make sure we're all thinking about things in that way as we're having this conversation and future conversations on policy, politics, and partisanship. And I don't think anyone needs too much more context and partisanship because it's... <laughs> It is apparent. It is apparent. That one's pretty clear. Yeah. 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 If you just remember, policy is a course of action. There, it requires a, a course of action. That's how we can kind of fundamentally come to some conclusion, and it's really intended to solve a problem. So, yeah. I mean, that's that's the place that we can oftentimes find uh, some common ground. It's yeah. the strategy and then the dogma that get in the way sometimes. Now, I've been fielding a lot of questions recently from friends and family relating to, um, I guess, some engineering in the political sense that has led to what, the apparent uh, overturning of Roe v. Wade by the Supreme Court. My uh, sister-in-law sexed me. She was like, Jerome, I don't understand how this happened. <laughs> so she's like, I woke up one day and like, I don't have these rights anymore. Like, I don't understand. And it's like, okay. Let me walk you through this a little bit, and I will try to link it to uh, our policy conversation here. Now, this is not about education, but I think mm -hmm. it's a salient but it example. Is. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It is. That's true. Um, so I told my sister-in-law, there are a lot of people who have decided, as a matter of policy, that they are against uh, abortion. They are against abortion. Um, they're not necessarily thinking about you, my sister-in-law, individually, but they are thinking about this policy, and they're very much in favor of it. And they have, and they understand kind of the rules of the game in the United States of America, like how you can make decisions that hold sway over other people. Uh, and so they are able to use politics uh, to get certain people elected and have those elected individuals make certain appointments. And uh, those, the people in those appointed positions are able to make decisions uh, like, apparently, the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which is why it's important to understand, at least in my view, and now, all of a sudden, in my sister-in-law's view, <laughs> policy and politics, and in this case, in particular, partisanship, um, and how it all comes to impact us on an individual level. You know, and I think even to that specific example, it gets to dogma in a different way. You know, mm. you know, you're an attorney by trade. You understand that um, the overturning, the potential overturning of Roe, doesn't um, Roe v. Wade allows for it basically created a, a federal standard that in that federal standard is simply that you ca there you cannot ban abortions across the entire United States, the federal mm -hmm. government. That's even understanding that concept of what a federal government is. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the potential overturning of Roe removes that federal oversight or federal uh, um, policy that says you can't ban abortion. So then it leads it leaves it to each individual state. So that's about dogma though, because you go back to the dawn of time of the dawn of our nation 
the dawn of our nation was built on a federal government, but we remember it was a very different context. 13 states, all on the East Coast, um, the there was no such thing as Twitter, there was no such thing as, cell, uh, as phones at all. Mm-hmm. So there was a very, very different contextual time. But if you read through the Federalist Papers of John Jay, uh, Alexander Hamilton, Madison, the whole dog, again, that partisanship dogma is about how does that side of the aisle, if we want to talk about it that way, view policy. And they view policy is that policy should be made at the most local level. Hmm. And so that particular side of the partisan aisle believes that that should be made at the state level. That decision should be made at the state level, not at the federal level. So that was the that was the intent of the overturn of Roe. Now, I'm not saying I agree with any of this. I'm mm-hmm. not saying I agree with, with even the strategy or the politics behind it. But I think understanding that long-term, long-held context of folks on the right, of center, it's about the lowest level of government. Education, most people that are far right side of that, of that, of that dogma in education believe that this, the control for even schools should be at the local level, even at the mm-hmm. school level. They don't believe that the state should be even having a whole heck of a lot of say over it, and clearly not the federal government. With something like abortion, the idea, we know clearly that that can't happen at a local level. You can't mm. do health care at a local level. So that side of the aisle's ideal is perhaps it should be at the state level because that would be the lowest logical form or lowest logical policy-making level. Now, again, I'm not saying I agree with any of that. Right, right, right. But right, right. that's the context for which this is, being, this is playing out. What makes it scary is that what's next. Yeah. Um, that, that the dogma... Again, the partisanship, the dogma, the dogmatic partisanship, the lowest level. So what else happens at the federal level that we, they would like to see at a more local level? Certainly. And with regard to dogma, it's even, you know, uh, at this point in time, they say they support uh, this ruling at the state level. So let states make up their own mind. But then from a political context, they will pivot to, uh, from what I've read in CNN at least, um, to advancing their dogma in those individual states that don't have the same policies or have policies that go against their dogma. Now, well, because that's where they feel like they oftentimes have the control. So right. I can't maybe make, state legislators can't make federal government, can't, can't do, make policy at the federal government when there's more at the state government level, they have more influence at the state government level, so therefore they can they, they have the ability. I mean, th- I think we can talk through a variety of different um, equal rights type of kind of conversations at the federal level. There are states that still have abortion bans on 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 uh, in the in the in the books, but since mm-hmm. Roe v. Wade, since the Roe case, the federal government basically says your state law doesn't matter. I think we can talk about marriage equality. We can talk about all of these things that there are still states and there's a state that's bordering uh, Minnesota that has a marriage equality law still on the books that if that federal case gets overturned, it reverts back to the state. So to your point, Jerome, too, that policymaking at the local level 
we oftentimes forget about and how important it really is. Yeah. Um, that regardless of your political affiliation or your, your, your partisan affiliation, it is incredibly important to understand the influence that you have and how that all works out at even at the most local level to all the way to the federal level. But that local level is the place that I'm, I'm, I'm afraid we're swinging in a way that we're, we're swinging to the Federalist Papers way of mm. thinking. Well, let me ask you a follow-up question because you mentioned uh, 2019 as being um, when you became a fellow, a policy fellow. Is that when you became interested in policy? Because I'm, uh, you know, now I've got the sister-in-law who's suddenly very interested in policy. And I, <laughs> I find that it's a lot of times it's when you are directly impacted that you suddenly become very interested in what's going on. It's like, hold on a second here. Uh, the whole system is broken because now I have been affected in a way I don't like. <laughs> and so I wonder if for you, was it an individual moment or have you always been interested and you just found the fellowship in 2019? I actually, I think I've, I don't want to say I've always been interested, but I think, uh, you know, this is my eighth year in the role that I'm in. Prior to being in the role that I was in, I, I'd been a school administrator for a number of years and a teacher for a number of years. And it, it and policy and poli policy making, at the even at the state and the federal level, just felt untouchable. Mm. Um, and it felt like I don't have an influence on it, so why should I even pay attention to it? Uh, when I came into this role, there were some really clear fundamental policy problems, um, particularly related to the teacher licensure in, in Minnesota. And um, particularly my, my, the work that I do in career and technical, there was a, a really massive problem within, with how career and technical education licensure worked in Minnesota. So I remember sitting, I remember in a conversation, one of my first years, I was walking, uh, we had some, this, the Department of Education, I think, was working through some PD for us, and we were identifying problems, and I remember getting so frustrated around that licensure component that yeah. I was talking to a colleague of mine from MDE, and I said, we got to blow this licensure piece up. I mean, it just has, in order, we can't fix what's existing, it has to quite literally be dismantled. Wow! And it happened. Um, I got I got asked by the commissioner at the time to be to uh, sit on a task force that the legislature created. Uh, then I subsequently got asked to co-chair that task force, um, and I started to see the tangibility of policy making at a state level. Mm. Um, it I did have opportunity to 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 think about things and influence policy. And we had some success around it. Uh, 2017 legislative session completely changed teacher licensure in Minnesota um, in a variety of different ways. And there's language in the law that I, I helped design. Um, mm. And it was like, okay, this isn't so hard. Um, it's not, I shouldn't say it's not hard because it's still hard. And it's, 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 there's a, there's a, there was a lot of luck involved too. But, um, that policy window opened, and where there was a solution to there were solutions to put in place. The fellowship actually came after that, um, because I needed to understand other pieces of the puzzle, not just teacher licensure. Yeah. Um, and it's and it's continued to evolve and evolve and evolve and evolve. Even at the federal level, there's a little bit of language in the in the federal Perkins Act that that I had suggested and. 
I'm probably the only one that remembers what languages it was, but it's still, it's in federal law, you know? Um, So, uh, not a lot of people can say that, Um, but it wasn't, it became tangible. And I think that's a lot of my drive with the Policy Fellowship is how do we get fellows, how do we get people, and we try to recruit from a variety of different dogmatic perspectives, Hmm. but how do we get people to understand that you do have this is your government you do have tangibility to this but you have to understand how it works you said something really um fascinating there uh how this puzzle how to put the puzzle pieces together and i think a lot of people don't even really consider policy and politics as a puzzle that needs to be put together Um, and you mentioned a piece of the puzzle a second ago as well Uh, You mentioned the policy window, and I was able to key in on that because of our fellowship. Would you mind just describing the policy window for a second? Sure. uh, And then we'll go to coffee break afterwards. Sure. So policy window is a a concept by John Kingdon, and and Kingdon says that in order for an opportunity for uh, for policy change, three things have to happen. This stream of, uh, of entrepreneurs, policy entrepreneurs, um, which are people that have the solutions to the problems, um, are, are, uh, are, are intersecting with the understanding of what the actual problem is. Um, so the problem stream, the policy stream, and the third stream is the political stream, which is really, frankly, the political will to actually change it. If you all three of those streams don't intersect, um, nothing will ultimately change. All three of those things, the policy, politics stream, the policy stream, and the, and the entrepreneur stream, or the problem stream, all have to f- intersect at the same time. And when they intersect at the same time, that's when it opens the policy window, which then allows things to actually change. I mean, the, the simplest example that I have around policy window is post 9-11. We knew there was a problem with uh, with security and with with all of these uh, these these international issues that were starting to bubble up in a variety of different ways. There were solutions out there. There were policy entrepreneurs out there that were screaming about solutions for a long period of time, mm-hmm. but nobody was listening to because the political will wasn't there. Well, nine eleven happened. That forced the political will to think about things differently. So they finally intersected at that point, and things changed. Um, yeah. Whether we can argue that they've changed their good or not, because I mean, <laughs> flying well, is different. Years. I mean, to, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Flying is different. Uh, there's a whole new government agency ba- because of post 9/11. That was an uh, that's an example of a of a policy window opening. Now, for your policy window with regard to uh, your CTE. Like what, what was the event that kind of, uh, let you realize, I guess, that this whole thing needs to be blown up, um, Mm -hmm. and that there was a policy window at play? Mm -hmm. So that's an interesting question because I've thought about this a lot. Mm. And I think, I think most people would agree that understand that the, we knew that there was a problem. Um, it was clearly that licensure was a massive problem in Minnesota, particularly with career and technical uh, there were lawsuits. Uh, the Board of Teaching at the time, which doesn't even exist anymore because of the change, was mm. being had been sued a number of times um, because of a variety of different things. There were all kinds of solutions that have been that had been presented, but 
the political will wasn't there to change it. The, the existing structure of the Board of Teaching really wasn't at the time interested in functionally shifting. Um, and there was not, it wasn't being, legislators weren't screamed at enough about, uh, about, the, different, about the change. What changed it yeah. was in Minnesota, there's, there's something called the Office of Legislative Auditor. And the OLA re uh, released a report in March of 2016 that the headline was Minnesota's teacher licensure system is broken. Mm -hmm. um, and that provided a pretty big wake-up call to legislators to say, ooh, I guess maybe we should do something. So that was the, I, I would argue that that was the precipice of opening that particular political, that policy window. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, we'll go to coffee break. Was was that Julie Blaha in twenty sixteen, or is that someone else? Uh, the OLA is a totally separate. So it was oh, uh, different. Okay, okay. Yep, 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 Not yep. The, the auditor. Office of Legislative Auditor, uh, auditor um, OLA. Uh, oh boy, I can can't think of what the. It's the okay. OLA I won't is, know them um, anyway. Yeah. I just know the one that I mentioned. Yep. <laughs> nope, nope. Yep, that's the state auditor. That's the fiscal auditor. The OLA it talks about po reviews policy and results based on policy. Yet another piece of the puzzle. Thank you very <laughs> much. Thank you very much. Um, let's go to a quick coffee break and give people a chance to digest this wonderful information. And then we'll be right back. Hey everybody, bivalent boosters are now available. You can schedule your appointment through your primary care physician, or if you're in Minnesota, you can go to the state-run vaccination sites at the Mall of America in Duluth, St. Paul, Rochester, and Moorhead. Disability accommodations are available upon request at those state-run sites. Right now, most people are not up to date on their boosters and we need to turn that around as we go into the cold season. Please get boosted. You do not want COVID-19. It's just not worth the risk. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Okay, we are back with Troy Haugen talking policy. And uh, I think one little nugget that kind of came up in our uh, coffee break conversation had to do with conversations about policy. You know, the goal, a big goal of the TV show, Bottomless Coffee with Jerome, is to bring people together over conversation, but that can be really difficult when you're not speaking the same language. Um, and uh, to borrow your metaphor from earlier, Troy, when you don't necessarily understand uh, that there is even a puzzle that needs to be put together. So maybe conversation about like, like how do we go from saying that's not right, you can't do that, that's wrong, that doesn't make any sense, like this is dumb, <laughs> to having actual informed conversations uh, that say, oh, okay, uh, you know, this, you've got this piece of legislation uh, that you're considering and here are some reasons why uh, I think you should not support it. Something so I think things. it goes, no, yeah, I, I, that's a great question. So I think it goes back to a little bit of what the policy design process is. You know, the policy mm -hmm. design process is a three-step process. You know, you know, and some people would disagree with this, but this is how I like to view, view it. And it's, it's not my original thought, so I'm not gonna take credit for it. But um, the first question is always, what's the problem? And um, 
and what's the problem we're trying to solve? And I think you have to keep asking that question until you can actually get to a root problem. Because oftentimes we like to define problems, define actually symptoms of problems as the actual problem. Well, if you mm. only address symptoms, you'll never actually get to a get to a solution. And then the second process is that what's your goal about? Uh, what's your what's your policy goal then with that with that problem? So if your problem is, uh, I, I I don't know. I mean. Let's not even talk about a specific. So problem is identified as problem A. What is our goal? Oftentimes it's to fix problem A. Um, and it could be just as simple as that. And the third part is where it gets tricky is then that's the, the how question is how do we do that politically? How do we do that through policy? And how do we implement it? And that's where there's this divesting of, uh, of partisan ideals sometimes. So to kind of that's a long story to answer your question, but I think the question oftentimes that I use is, so what problem are you trying to solve here? Hmm. Um, if if a if a law if, with a policymaker is uh, considering some legislation that you're not necessarily agreeing to, the question can always be is, okay, so tell me so I better understand what's the problem that you're trying this policy is trying to solve. Yeah, I think sometimes you're going to find that they don't know, um, sure. and it's, there probably isn't a problem, which is a good tip off that it's not going to change anything. It's not going to do anything policy wise. It's you know mm -hmm. it's not a course of action really. Then, and then if you can kind of come to some consensus about what the problem is, the conversation tends to, tends to go a lot better. Um, if if you can come to common ground about what the problem is and even what the goal is. There's a lot of com there's a lot of constructive conversation that can happen between those two things. Again, step three about the hows get to be a little bit more sticky, but there's a level there's a lever of influence if you can actually come to common ground on what the actual problem is and what the goal is. Um, I don't know how many times I ask, what's the problem? What's hmm. the problem we're solving? This is a market shift from the way I see uh, engagement with policymakers being kind of advertised to people. You know, it's like sign this petition telling so-and-so that you don't like this and that. And then, you know, you feel like you're, you're an activist. I did it. I clicked the link. I <laughs> gave them my email address and now I'm just going to wipe my hands and be done. Um, instead of having an actual conversation with your elected representative or the appointed person who's having, who's making this decision. Um, and then, when you're engaging with that person, not just saying, hey, dummy, <laughs> this sucks. <laughs> it may still suck, you know. Yeah. It may still be dumb, but you're at least operating off the same set of information uh, or mm -hmm. the same, same, you know, proverbial wavelength. Um, but it opens a dialogue. It, the, the, the grassroots lobbying efforts of, you know, sign this petition, click this button, uh, call your state representative, your state senator, your federal representative. You, you, they they make check boxes. Yeah, they they uh, sending a sending an email that somebody has sent that you just copy and paste. Yep, they've got a staffer that's you know got a got a piece of paper on their desk, and there's a there's a, a pro and a con column, and they're marking the box. And every time they get one of those, they're not reading them. Mm -hmm. um, there, you know, I've been in been in Senate offices in in representative offices in in Washington D.C. and I've stood next to the person that's taking those phone calls, 
and this they say the same thing and they've got that same paper on the on the thing so yeah is it is it some level of grassroots lobbying and advocacy yet yeah, but is it really all that impactful it's it might get you a yes or a no vote but it doesn't shift the conversation or it doesn't shift the policy it basically draws a line in the sand saying i agree or i disagree it doesn't shift the actual language of the policy and i think one of the powerful things that you mentioned regarding asking yeah you know, what is the problem we're trying to solve um you if you can have that conversation with the person and get them to come to your point of view that this is not actually solving the problem or that this is creating more problems than it'll solve, they will then take that conversation back to others. To, they'll take that to their staff who are actually writing like the legislation or what have you and say, oh, we have to make sure that whatever solution we're, um, we're trying to design does not have these negative consequences. Uh, as reported to me by my wonderful constituent who is so mm -hmm. great at having conversations and, <laughs> and helping, really, helping make things better for everyone. And we all desire to be treated like humans. Yeah. Um, and vast majority of state policymakers, state legislators, and federal le legislators, whether you believe with their believe in their or abide by their 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 partisan dogma are really still good people they want the best for their constituents mm -hmm. um so coming in on a conversation with uh the proverbial guns ablazing doesn't get you anywhere you get shut down really fast they'll if you're a constituent they'll 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 appease you by listening for a while but it's not going to change anything um yeah it's, it's sometimes it's a tough pill to swallow. It's sometimes not fun. Trust me, I've had those conversations. Um, but there generally really are, not all of them, just, sure. I, you know, you can't, you can't say this about ever. There's, there's never a full 100% of anything. Um, but there's, they're generally really good people. Yeah. And, you know, everyone is the hero in their own story. So even if, you know, you don't think they're good people, like they certainly think, they are dedicated public servants doing the best they can um, for whoever it is they spend their most most of their time thinking about. Well, um, and clear, clearly there's a plurality of their voting public that did too yeah. at some point in time. Yeah, agreed. Well, this kind of um, ties into another question for uh, our activists in the audience who maybe have, well, this might not even be an activist, but say you've got a really good idea. And uh, you think it deserves to be policy, um, not necessarily a complaint. <laughs> or, mm -hmm. no, you, don't even, you don't even feel like calling anybody any names. You're like, this is just a good idea. Everybody should do this. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> what is the best way in your mind uh, to go from idea to actual reality in terms of policymaking? Surround yourself with people that are gonna gonna ask those hard questions to you first, um, and that might be people from the other the other the partisan dogma mm. that that you believe in, um, and clearly start with the problem. Um, if if you don't identify if the and understand that if the problem is not identifiable by the end user, it's not gonna go anywhere. Um, 
you, I might see a problem within a large system. Um, but if it's not identifiable to the people that are in that system, it's not a problem. Yeah. It really isn't a problem. So if you can start with the problem, really push yourself to say, is this really the problem or is this a symptom of a problem? Surround yourself with people that think similarly and surround yourself with people that don't think that way. Um, and if you can come to consensus on what the problem is and what your goal is, then start with the start with the language from there. I mean, I, I've had success in actually drafting legislative language knowing that I'm not an attorney, I'm not a I'm not a reviser, but if I get something, if I come with some attempted solution, it's a lot further than saying, hey, there's this problem out there. Because the question is oftentimes, well, then, okay, what do we do about it? Well, I don't know. That's your problem. Well, no, right. that's everybody's problem. <laughs> you would be amazed how much power and control, power you have in that process, how much leverage perhaps you have in that process. But you have to get to what's the problem. Not trust me. Not all legislators look at what the problem is first. But those, hmm. those, most of those solutions, most of those solutions, most of those policies don't ever actually make it into law. Um, most in a in a in a in a in a healthy legislative environment, only the policies that make it to law are the ones that actually have functionally identified a strong problem. So it, I, I, I know I probably sound like a broken record with that. What's the problem? What's the problem? But well, I think you if you look at that any, in the beginning, yeah, right. You say, I say it a lot. <laughs> yeah. You're not lying. <laughs> I think even in our own systems, you know, even in our own systems of our employment, our systems of our, of schools, there's so often we go to solutions without ever identifying the problem. I remember as a principal, I would, I'd have a teacher come to me and say, we need this piece of mm. software. It's going to make things better. And oftentimes I'd say, okay, if I had the money in the budget, I'd just do it. And I think now, how stupid was I? I never asked what the problem was. And it never functionally shifted anything because we had solutions looking for problems instead of problems clearly identified and then a solution designed on the problem. Thank you. That's very, that is very useful information. And I think that's, that'll be helpful to people um, as they are probably starting to communicate with their friends and family um, before being able to fully put the puzzle together. Because, um, you know, we, got, we have elections coming in November. We've got people who are activated. And really? I think there, I, I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I will make a point of reminding people that elections are coming in November. <laughs> so I'm not uh, saying it anywhere I else. It drives me crazy. I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of a lot of gaming going on towards those yeah, elections. Yeah. <laughs> remember, there's a lot of conversations too. Yeah. Yes, I think a lot of conversations and when we were um you mentioned that one of the P's has to do with politics and getting the right politicians in place will influence that policy window and you have to vote in order to get those politicians in place. And which means you got to talk to other people about the problems uh, that you're having, that you're seeing, and ideally how this person that you're supporting <laughs> will help address those problems. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. We can, we, we, ha in order to have a government, you have to have elected officials. Um, yeah. so, I mean, that, that goes without saying vote and understand what you're voting for and whom you're voting for. Um, it, they will represent you for, if they're a house member for two years, if they're a Senate member for longer, or depending on the cycle in the minute in Minnesota, but a minimum of two years, but most, most frequently four, you yeah. know, it's different at the federal level, but, um, they represent you. Um, so therefore they should represent you. And I would say, try, try the, I'm going to call it the Troy exercise, uh, in the mornings when your, your phone has delivered you an article, uh, and it's a new piece of legislation or something. Like, what is the problem that they're attempting to solve here? And see if you can get to it and see if you agree with it being a good idea or uh, a bad idea. And then maybe, this could be the Jerome challenge, uh, engage in an actual conversation with someone, uh, maybe who challenges your immediate assumption or uh, thought process on that article uh, and see if you come out better for it. I think that you will, uh, but, we'll, but Troy is making a face, and so I'm not sure anymore. <laughs> no, absolutely. Well, I 100% agree with you. Um, I, I think, too, um, we have, we've, we've defined ourselves by our partisan affiliation way mm. too much. Um, I clearly fall on one side of the center um, and, and, and even it's, it's ironic because I think most people, if you ask them what political party they, 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 they aspire to, they vote for, they always say that they're a moderate, they vote for the person and not for the, not for the, not for the yeah. party. And yeah. yet I think damn near every one of them actually votes down party line every time. Um, so, you know, don't say you're an independent when you're not really an independent. Just just be honest with yourself. Um, <laughs> but I think if we started thinking more as an independent, uh, you know, the, and, and, and pay attention to what our legislators are doing, no matter, uh, you know, according to their partisan um, alignment, there are problems in both sides, um, and, and there are there are barriers in both sides. I would argue, you know, the particularly the DFL um, uh, caucus system is really fundamentally broke. Yeah. Um, it's and it 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 it, it, it perpetuates the same thing over and over. It perpetuates the same candidates over and over and over and over again. And uh, if you're not part of the in crowd. Um, You'll, you'll frankly not get an endorsement. That's a problem. That's a massive problem. But the, the people, most people don't understand that because they don't go to the ballot box until, until November, recognizing that they don't recognize that there was a whole system to get them to the ballot, to the, get them on that ballot. There's, we have to talk about those things. Um, yeah, there, there's problems on, in every side and, People that want people are in power have a want want to stay in power. I mean that's just in an, in I think an innate human piece. And in the interest of balance, in the interest of balance, I do agree with you on the DFL caucus system being a mess. Um, I also recall Donald Trump um, when he was running in the last election. I think the Republicans just decided not to have a primary. You oh, know? absolutely. <laughs> No, I, 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 I think I used the DFL example because I, I think you probably clearly figure out that I fall probably on on, 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 the, on the, the left side of the of the perspective. 
Um, <laughs> but I think people that live in that left side, which I probably mm-hmm. would argue that most people in education space do, do um, don't recognize that there's problems even on the left side. Um, Certainly. And if we don't start addressing those problems or even we're not even identifying them. Yeah. We yeah. know that they are there, but the people that hold the power within that structure, the political will isn't there to change it. The mm-hmm. policy will, the policy knowledge, the problem is there. The policy entrepreneurs know their solutions, but the political will isn't there yet to change it. The political will only get there to change it when the populist decides that's it, that it's important. Right. So there's no policy window open. Right. And there's no, there, they have no interest. The people who are, um, who are benefiting from the system perpetuating itself in this way have no interest in adjusting the system. <laughs> so. Which I, I think when we talk in generalities, everybody think that's a, everybody talks about the Republicans that way. Right. I think we right. got to be honest about that. And it's not just Republicans. It's not it's just Republicans. our own system. I agree. I agree. Well, hopefully this has given some people things to think about over this next coffee break that we will begin at the end of this sentence. Be right back. (laughs) Okay, we are back with Troy Haugen. Oh my gosh, dude. I knew that having you on here was going to be like an amazing conversation, but it's also been a really great refresher for me, uh, for what I learned in the fellowship, which is really honestly kind of life changing in the way that I approach these policy and political problems. Um, if people are interested in possibly joining a fellowship themselves, uh, in Minnesota, what should they do? Sure. So the Minnesota Education Policy Fellowship, um, it's shifted a little bit in the last couple of years. We were we were actually aligned to a, a, a federal um, or a, a nationwide organization, and we divested from them a few years ago um, post COVID, just because the for a number of reasons it wasn't a negative, it wasn't a it wasn't a divorce by any means. But um, but for for the Minnesota Education Policy Fellowship, we're in our forty sixth or forty seventh year um, in aggregate. Uh, the Center for Policy Design out of the out of the Twin Cities Metro. Uh, I think they're the. Uh, I don't know if they have an office anymore. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, is what hosts the Metro cohort, and on the center's website, which is centerforpolicy.org, there's a whole bunch of information on the Education Policy Fellowship, and that'll bring you to the bring you to the rural side too. Um, so go ahead and take a peek at that again. Centerforpolicy.org. And then for other policy, they're around. You just have to look for them. Use the, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so use the Google box. I'll tell people, use the Google box and, <laughs> and, and look it all up and you can find something. Um, they're all over the place. And don't be afraid to be, to put yourself in a position where you're not necessarily dogmatically aligned mm-hmm. with the, 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 the fellowship. Um it's not going to be comfortable and there will be all the time, but I think there's value in understanding both sides. Certainly. Certainly agree with you. Uh, and it can reinforce your, your original position. You're, you're, you can go in, you can uh, hear what other people have to say, engage in conversation and leave the thing. And yeah, I'm definitely right. <laughs> or it could go another way. 
Yeah, I spent yeah. two and a half days in D.C. at a pretty right-leaning uh, um, uh, uh, think tank last week. And I trust me, I didn't change how I view, view <laughs> education policy um, or, or policy in general. But it was a very valuable conversation. Um, very valuable conversation. Awesome. It's really interesting, awesome. too. Was really interesting to just be sitting with fifty or so big R Republicans, and me being one of maybe three not big R Republicans. Um, but uh, those those are a story over a beer sometime. Yeah, I was like, we can talk more about that offline because I'm interested. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they're still every one of them are really truly good people. Yeah, it was really, and we could identify the problem almost every time, and we could actually identify our goals almost every time. And you know what? Honestly, sometimes the policy solutions were damn near the same. Huh. Well, there you go. That's a, a great benefit to talking with other people and identifying what the problem right. is. But I don't want to step in your toes as we get into the final message. <laughs> <laughs> Are you predicting what my final message is? I have a guess. I have a guess. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, is there something that you want to make sure that the people at home or in the car or on the treadmill as they're listening to this, that they take away from our conversation today? Well, as you predicted, I think, uh, what's the problem? Start with that question. But I think also government is tangible way beyond what you probably, your mental model is with it. Um, you have levers of influence that you probably aren't using, but start with the problem. And then honestly, knowledge is power. The more, you know, the, the more influence, the more leverage you have, um, screaming, no screaming. Yes. Screaming anything without the knowledge gets you nowhere. Yep. Drop in knowledge. Thank you so much, Troy. This was fantastic. I'm excited for the conversation that this will uh, bring about between our audience. And then hopefully once we've all gained some levels, you can come back and we can have like an advanced course in policy and, and see what comes up. <laughs> I won't tell you what my, my undergrad background is. It has nothing to do with policy. You're, so you're probably all going to think, well, what the hell is he talking about? But you know, I've seen a little success. So. <laughs> seen a little. I mean, you're, you're in the, Federal statutes, so. (laughs) Like three words, but you know. Three words. (laughs) That's right. Thank you, Troy. And thanks, everybody. And I'll see you next time. We did it.